0: This is the story of a 16-year-old girl who left her home and travelled to London to follow her passion and become a ballerina. This is the story of how Rianne Keyes had to grow up quickly in a physically demanding and mentally tough competitive environment. Rianne has always been fascinated with movement, anatomy and posture and went on to become a qualified Pilates instructor. She developed the Ballet Fit programme for the English National Ballet and is also passionate about helping those suffering with back pain, which in 2013, accounted for 31 million lost work days. Rihanna's worked with some of the biggest corporate brands and individuals to help keep Londoners fit, well and on the move. Each week, I'll be asking my guests to tell us one or two of their favourite secret places to visit in London, whether it's a restaurant, pub, museum or simply a lovely walk. So make sure you listen to the end of the show where my guest will spill the beans on their legacy reveal. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is is your London legacy. Okay, so I'm delighted to say that today's guest is Rhianne Keyes. Hello, Rhianne. How are you doing today? I'm good. <laughs> good I'm good. 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 Uh, Rhianne is a former ballet dancer, ballerina. Correct. She's a Pilates teacher. She runs, recoup- what do you call them, rehabilitation I do courses, physical therapy through exercise. Physical therapy. She's got a really interesting story, and we're sitting here in her lovely Uh, flat in, where are we? West Hampstead. West Hampstead. Hampstead. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful March day. Uh, This will be going out uh, March, April time. So hopefully the sun will still be shining. Great. So thank you very much, Rianne, for uh, having us here in your home. Pleasure. Along with Maxwell, who's sitting next to you.
1: My sausage dog.
0: Your sausage dog. My mascot. Who's going to be very well behaved today, isn't he? We hope. Yeah, we hope. Despite him turning on Alexa earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So Rhianne, I'm interested in your Story, and we're interested in obviously how you have married up your career as a ballerina. Yeah. What do you call a ballerina or a ballet dancer? What either you, or. Either or ballerina has got a nice, nice yeah. touch with it, I think as a ballerina, and how you brought that into your practice today, and how your business has started to flourish and take off, and all the wonderful things you're doing with that, and the benefits that you're you're giving to your clients. Yeah. So tell us about your interest first off in ballet.
1: Well, like most little girls, you know, we all want to go and do ballet classes. And I'm sure I banged on at my mum until she just gave in and put me in a tutu and sent me. And then, you know, you realize as a, you know, if you're going to become a ballet dancer, it's from a very young age that you kind of get spotted, you know, the, the, they can see your talent and your you know your physiology of your body and that you know if you have that potential you know to go on and be professional so it becomes um life consuming from a very young age Mm -hmm. so by the age of 10 11 you know your every day is about ballet you're training every day every weekend you're already hyper and you know analytical of your body and your movement so children who are going to be ballet dancers are very uh, mature and and hyper aware of themselves and their movement and obviously that only goes further when you go to ballet school so I went at 16 to Central School of Ballet and there I met who we are now my lifelong friends you know with those of us that stuck it out and became professional they're still my best girlfriends now
0: was this something that your parents encouraged or was yeah it something- I mean my
1: parents were brilliant I'm from a working class family in in Yorkshire um money wasn't <laughs> I hide it very well <laughs> You know, I, thank goodness I got a scholarship for ballet school because it, it's an elitist profession. And I still think if I have more time, I dedicate to, you know, pushing the government to give more funding to these things in the arts because it's very, very expensive. But yeah, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to pay for all my tuition. So therefore, my parents actively encouraged it. They also sacrificed a lot financially to fund the rest of it. I mean, rent in London. I remember graduating at 19 and my dad stopped paying my rent, rightfully so, because I could work then. And I called him and I said, have you got any idea how expensive it is to rent this flat? And he was like, yeah, I've paid it for the last three years. <laughs> and I was living in Clerkenwell because that's where the ballet school was. Yeah, And that, for me, was the centre of the earth. I thought that's what London was. And he explained that, no, Rianne, not everybody lives in Clerkenwell. <laughs> you might want to go and explore other areas of London. Uh-huh. So that's how I ended up in northwest London. Okay. I thought Hampstead was just as nice.
0: Well, it's not bad at all is <laughs> you're Hampstead. You can <laughs> so, go far So, not
1: much cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then, you know, I became, I became a dancer. I was a ballet dancer then in the big wide world.
0: What were some of the difficulties you perhaps had to overcome in the training and becoming a professional? Being because poor.
1: Uh. <laughs> Just, it's, it's militant. It's militant. And, you know, at ballet school, it was a good day if you didn't cry. I mean, that was a great day. So it really is. And it's exhausting. Ah. You know, the physical exhaustion and the mental exhaustion means that you really are, you know, sort of a ball of emotion most of the time. That with teenage hormones of a 16-year-old girl. I mm. mean, you, you know, God forbid any man comes near that.
0: So you were living away from home. Your parents were yeah. up in York So we live in
1: London. Have... There's no, it's not like a halls of residence or, a, you know, a university or anything. You live in a flat or in a hostel or something and you go to college every day, you know, so you're responsible for yourself. So in that sense, you have to grow up quickly and, and just be mature and sensible and make sure you don't grow off the rails. But like I say, it's an all-consuming life. So you you know uh, your diet your finances your relationship status everything is about being a dancer so you have to sacrifice so much in order to make it work it's a
0: hell of a lot to take in as a 16 year old they're moving away and
1: i think it doesn't you don't and ultimately because you don't know you don't you don't actually have that majority it's only much later on and looking back you know you could look at how maybe you could have done it better but at the time you know we did what we could we had Enough-ish support around us within the college. Like I say, it's not a boarding school, so there's no real pastoral Mm. care. There was, you know, on and off if we wanted, like a psychologist or a nutritionist, but they're not there to look after you. They're Mm. there if you if you request them, they would be there.
0: So what was the threshold? I mean, what was the point at which you or your parents understood that you thought? I've got the skills, I've got the ability and the physique, you know, the determination know. To, to make a career. I don't know,
1: I've never really asked them that. I think on my dad's head, hopefully never, because he was paying for private school and I think he thought, this is <laughs> my dead body, is she going to be a ballerina? And my mum was just 100% behind me and she was always of the opinion, because it means leaving school, leaving education at 16. She was of the opinion, "Your yeah, education can wait. I could educate my brain whenever, but my body won't wait. So mm. I may as well, if I have this talent, then you may as well do it so we did like I say if I hadn't got a scholarship I probably couldn't have gone but they were in the end super supportive I was one of those children and still am as an adult if you're gonna say no I'll find a way to do it anyway so the best thing my parents could do it would you know get behind it and, and support me yeah. because I would have just it would left have ended, home it would
0: have ended badly <laughs> yeah I would have yeah. just run
1: away anyway so it was probably better that they so you've got
0: to be very single minded in your personality oh yeah yeah
1: it's, I mean you're, when you're erotic with stubborn with you're one track minded yeah you have to be
0: uh-huh.
1: otherwise you just fall to pieces
0: so so you're in control of your finances, albeit you're getting you know money from home. Yeah, do, you know, well, yeah. I mean, sort of I'm grand. getting
1: control of my finances. That's probably a phrase that most people would say is not true about me, even now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, in so much as yeah, you have to learn how to budget and pay your pay your own rent and set up direct so debits are, and things like huge
0: that. Huge responsibilities for for a young girl away from home. Do you know what? With...
1: It's a bit like you know people say to me "Oh my God, you left home at 16. That's huge." At the time, you're so young, you have no clue. It's almost like you don't, you have so little clue of what you're doing. It's okay. Mm. If I was a bit older, maybe 18, I probably would have been scared. But at 16, you just don't know. So mm. you're like, okay, that's what needs to happen.
0: So I'm not, a, I don't follow ballet particularly, but I, I know my wife always wanted to be a ballerina. So we was have a laugh, but it she's about f- she's about five foot nothing. So it never really worked for her. Mm.
1: I think the height thing can be a bit of a misnomer. I mean, I'm five 8 I'm extremely tall for a British dancer, certainly. Therefore, I struggled to get work, actually, uh, you know, in the beginning. What, um, for
0: being too tall?
1: Yeah. Because I was, when you start your quarter ballet, which is, you know, just the, mm. you know, the, but the people in the background really, and they're all about five, five. So three inches, you know, in a quarter ballet is a big difference. Mm. So I would struggle to get work in the UK, certainly in the US, the dancers are taller and, but I was not good enough for that because <laughs> they're a bit better over there.
0: Right. So you said starting young is, very important in, in ballet is that because you can mold your body and train your body and you're more while, supple, you're, as while you your body's
1: it? still forming you can manipulate it you can you know the reason adults who decide they want to do the splits at age 40 or something can't is because it's already formed yeah. is yeah is that a problem for you yes yeah, it's, it's a problem <laughs>
0: it's always been still, a problem still working on it. <laughs> Maybe you can show me afterwards, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, you yeah, when you have a uh, it's about you see Olympic gymnasts and things, you know, you work on a child, you can do great things with their bodies mm. because sure. you know you're their the muscle memory is still developing, so you know you can train it mm. and flexibility as well. You know, you ever seen a toddler um, sitting? You know, they just sit with their legs flat outwards because they have that mobility in their hips. If you train that, then it stays. Yeah. If you don't and let it. You know, stiffen up then um mm. yeah, then it goes So away. what was a
0: typical day like at um college?
1: I sat aside from crying and drinking Diet Coke, it was we would get there at eight with the start time was eight forty-five. the law was we had to be there at 815 to warm ourselves up for 30 minutes and me and my best friend who lived together were like this terrible twosome who would always be late and because we lived together one of us would have to hustle and get there before so one of us at least made it and the other one would just sort of stroll in afterwards yeah they were quite strict on that sometimes they would not stop you from doing the whole day if you weren't there on time so you just have to sit and watch which is a bit cruel. Uh, so 8.15 warm-up, 8.45 ballet class every morning for an hour and a half. That's just, you know, tr- your training, your daily medicine, you know, to keep mm. you on your legs and keep you strong and get you stronger. And then you did all kinds of other things. We had contemporary classes, part of or where you learn to dance with a boy, uh, repertory classes. So you're learning, you know, solos and, and, uh, group pieces from ballets, jazz. Uh, they, Try to make us sing again. Therese my my best friend and flatmate, and I were the worst at singing. Why
0: would you have to sing? Was that for rhythm? In case,
1: in case the ballet thing fell apart and you ended up in the West End. I don't know. Right. So we just, yeah, we were terrible singers. And yeah, there's a reason I uh-huh. don't sing.
0: But a typical day in terms of hours in the Oh, finishing
1: could have- it could be anything earlier six. Um, if there was a performance coming up, or like when we went on tour in our third year, you'd just be kept there until somebody said you can go. Mm. I mean, it could be as late as half eight, nine-ish. There's no, you know, there's no sort of union for dancers. There's no, you know, this is your contracted hours. You stay until the job's done. Yeah. Time is money.
0: And how many years do you have to do to get your qualification? Or what is the qualification? What do you come out with?
1: Well, the government have put a qualification on it because they offer some funding for it now. So it's called... Oh, I'm going to sound stupid. The National Diploma for Professional Dance, which is what it was when I did it. I mm. believe it's a degree now. It's not about a qualification, though. In the terms of ballet, it's mm. just about training your body solidly mm. for three years so that you're able to get work. Mm. Like anything in the arts, I'm sure they could put a standard, you know, I can give you a degree. But ultimately, it's about learning the art form and being able to do sure. it, perform it.
0: Sure. And did they help you with career moves afterwards? Yeah,
1: I mean, so in the third year we did. So I went to Central School of Ballet. So the third year is called Ballet Central. So it becomes its own mini company. And it gets, I guess it gets outside funding. And we go on tour. So outside choreographers come in, you know, choreograph pieces on us. And as if we were dancers in a company selecting who they want cast in the certain roles. And we learned that from December through, sorry, September through to January. And then around this time of year, I think around March, it sets out on a UK wide tour until the graduation in July. And that was great because then it's like you're in a proper company and Mm. you're with the people that you've trained with the last two years. And you're on these very small stages, but there are audiences in the UK that that really cherish their local theatre and will go year after year to see that, you know, all these graduates of Ballet Central, you know, they expect Mm. them to come and, you know, they enjoy seeing them. Um, so yeah, you're prepared by the time so you're what, going what to do we were you audition. performing
0: sort of classic ballet as could well anything, as... anything, whatever, contemporary... whatever was
1: selected by Ballet Central, by the artistic director. So there was contemporary pieces. There was, in my, my time, there was a big classical piece. The lot, it could be anything. It depends mm. what... In the same way in a ballet company, if there's a triple bill, for example, anything could be put mm. on you. You're it's your, your preference. Music I'm a neoclassical dancer because I'm long and limmy. I'm like Bambi. So, you know, I'm not very twee. You know, a lot of the big ballets, like, you know, they're all very twee and daisy chain-like, and I'm a bit more lean and, and limmy, so I, I'm a bit better at the neoclassical stuff. More dynamic, let's okay. put it that way.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, somewhere between ballet and contemporary, in the middle.
0: So what was the bridge between that and where you, where you are now with your business? Or-
1: Basically, I learned that I was never going to be employed all year round as a dancer, certainly not every single year. Contracts are usually a year long. And so you spend a lot of time unemployed, and I was a terrible waitress. That's so the long and short of it. Yeah, fair enough. I remember my manager sitting me down and saying, Rianne, it's not okay to swear at customers. And I was like, but why? And he said, because you can't. And my, my thought was I'm not paid enough to not swear at them. So I trained to be a Pilates teacher because Pilates is something that all dancers do to prevent injury. And in the event you are injured, to rehab you from injury.
0: So Pilates is something which has been... Because- it's a
1: natural progression.
0: Because Pilates is only relatively recent, I would say, in the well, public domain. In the public
1: domain, yeah. It was Joseph Pilates, you know, was the guy. And um, it was came around in, the, I think, the Second World War. Mm. And he used to, a lot in the, in the military to keep soldiers really fit and free of injury. If you look at the videos back then of what Pilates was, it's almost like we've wrapped everyone in cotton wool and lit some candles and gone, okay, everyone relax. Back then, it was really brutal. Mm. I mean, he was like bashing them and encouraging them to do it harder and do it more. So yeah, so I trained to be a Pilates teacher with the intention of combining a bit of Pilates teaching in between dance contracts. And what happened, I trained as a Pilates teacher. I got work as a Pilates teacher and it just snowballed. And by the time I was 23, I had a business. So that was kind of the end of my stage career. I, I combined the two for about two years, but ultimately it was not possible to get up and leave for six months to go on tour with a ballet company when I had clients who were relying on me for their aches and pains and for their own well-being. Sure. It wasn't practical.
0: So where to were you getting that. clients from, work from? Was it just through word of I mouth? I started
1: because I live in North West Sun and there was a physiotherapy practice nearby and I rented just a little bit of space from the practice. So I got patient referral. That's how my business has been navigated completely clinically. So I just got patient referral from people who maybe had had surgeries, bit of physio. Now I needed some general exercises, you know, to keep them well. And then it just got so much more than that. Then I got direct referral from consultants and then I developed a corporate scheme as well. So I decided, I realized when I had my studio, there's a, there's a huge market for companies paying for this kind of, facility within you know within the workplace in, in-house this yeah. is you going into I would the- have mostly they would be bankers or lawyers or pe- you know, big producers and companies who are mostly middle-aged usually men long periods of time at their desks on big salaries or big you know bonus type you know structures therefore encouraged to be at work and producing hmm. With just generic low back pain, it seemed to me that I could solve standing on my head. It was nothing to deal with for me. It was so, so easy. And these people would book, you know, eight till nine o'clock at night appointments in my studio in Northwest London and be missing them constantly, b- being charged, you know, cancellation fees for it because at five to eight, they're stuck at the desk. There's a yeah. trade going on or something's happened in the or world. they're just
0: too damn exhausted to get out and do something different. No,
1: mostly they were stuck still were at work. Yeah. And so I realized, and then I asked one of my clients at the time who'd end up taking almost a sabbatical for like a month and leaving the country because his neck pain got so bad. And I asked him what that cost his bank at the time in terms of would his clients trade if he was away? And if they did, if they didn't, then how much money would the bank lose? And it was, I think around $9,000 that the bank would have lost just in his absence for a month. And then his salary as well. And that was it. So I put together some statistics and that year was 2008, which was the beginning of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So you'd think not a great time to set up a new business venture, but actually it was the best thing I ever did. So the government set up a pledge at the, begin- the start of the financial crisis for lots of companies to sign up to you, pledging that it's important to invest in your workforce's well-being during uh, economic downturn. Because when you have turnover of staff, that is the worst thing for the stability of your company and therefore sure. the economy. And then I looked at the statistics of back pain alone. So back pain alone costs, well, it costs the NHS 1,620-ish million pounds a year to treat just back, neck and muscular pain. Mm-hmm. In terms of the cost to the economy, it's about 30 million sick days a year are taken just yeah, for back I saw pain. Yeah, that
0: stat too, yeah.
1: And 14 billion pounds a year. Now that was enough for me to get together a business plan and go to every company sure. and be like, why why aren't you paying me?
0: Yeah, I mean, 31 and million that, sick days, work sick days off yeah, a year is just and 14
1: billion pounds. And that was yeah. 2008. So we're now 10 years on. So there was, all the evidence was there. And um, this wonderful lady uh, called Dara, who is the HR director of a company called Telluriel Trillium, which is a commercial property company. She is now my business mentor actually, but back then she was the director of HR and she helped me mold a business model that I could implement in her company, but also would be translatable to other companies. And we were careful to market it within the workforce as a back care scheme, not Pilates or wellbeing or alternative. We didn't want to terrorize, you know, senior male executives <laughs> who thought doing Pilates in the lunch hour was going to be a bit, you know, silly. And, um, and it worked. So these guys are like, they were mostly men because those are mostly the people that, you know, were my demographic in terms of pain, but there were women as well. And we didn't get one person with any, anything other than a positive change. And we limited them to six sessions. Um, that the company paid for. They had a choice to self-pay afterwards if they wanted, which they didn't, but that's fine. And most basically, we gave them self-management strategies. So we could work with them at their desk if need be. If they needed to stay at the desk, they could stay at the desk. And we taught them if they had pain on the spot, how to stretch or move in a way that relieved the pain instantly, or certainly for the rest of the day. And then we also gave them long-term self-management solutions in terms of strengthening what area of your body and these exercises to target Strengthening certain areas to stop the pain from coming back. So
0: you're working on a one-on-one setting or in a a group class. Yeah.
1: So lots of companies now will have an in-house gym or in-house yoga, in-house Pilates, which is great if you're for the masses. You just want to keep your health. Mm -hmm. If you already have a pathology. So let's take a herniated disc in your spine, which is very common in desk-based jobs. Mm-hmm. Then you you can't go to a big old class; you, you risk making it worse. So the long-term plan was that it should, in theory, bring down a company's indemnity insurance. That side, I'm actually not sure because this started ten years ago. So I'm just trying to quantify the data now and make sure that with my results with the clients that I work with are positive, and that they are healthier, they are pain-free, or as pain more as pain-free as possible mm. when I finished with them. And really great to get feedback as in they can they come to me and say i can pick up my son now i you know stuff that i overlook completely i'm just there because they need to sit at their desk yeah and they go but my three-year-old son i can't pick him up for the last six months and now i can and that suddenly i mean that must change somebody's world if you can't lift your own child you know that's debilitating mentally and emotionally as well as physically
0: mm. these guys presumably because they're working in a high pressure environment they'll do what you say when you're there next to them and sort of kicking their backsides into shape. But when they go home, how do they retain that accountability?
1: Because you're right, weeks one to two, they'll only do it because I'm there. And as they slowly see change, they will start to do it themselves because they want to. So I have to make sure I'm really on top of my game in terms of analyzing any data I have. So their MRI scans or clinicians' reports. So I know exactly what the presenting problem before I meet them. And then really do my job in terms of analyzing their posture and their movement the first time I see them so that every exercise I give will show them some small positive change in the first couple of weeks and then they that's their incentive to do it themselves mm. if i fail in that then i that's when i would have people fall sure. away which touch would i don't
0: really i guess looking at my posture now it's not too great twisting you're sat at
1: my very comfy chest you're comfy so you're chair, but I'm twisting
0: at a sort of odd angle to face. i'm
1: also I, sitting on sofas at home <laughs> yeah, is a different you know, story you
0: know how to sit and how to stretch and I exercise don't. i don't practice
1: what i <laughs> preach always though well
0: no who, <laughs> i who don't does? think anybody does <laughs> nobody does so You've developed this ballet fit. Is it a scheme? Well, it is a methodology? Well, ballet
1: fit was something I did for English National Ballet. So they approached me and said... Well, actually, they, I work for them in their outreach program. So every big ballet company that gets government funding will have an outreach program that takes the choreographies that are being performed at the time out to, you know, schools in, in London and all, all over the UK and te- get ballet to children because it is, like I said earlier, an elitist profession. Mm. How many children, how many families can afford to take their child to the ballet? None. Mm. It's like 70 quid a ticket. It's insane. So I was doing that and as they (laughs) rightly identified, if I was sent to a school in Tower Hamlets or something, I'd be eaten alive. And they were right. (laughs) So me going in and trying to teach Cinderella to, you know, a bunch of kids who've never even, you know, seen a pair of point shoes and, you know, shouting at me. So what happened was, so they thought I'd be better working with adults and they're right. Um, not the most maternal of people. So, and he asked me to do ballet fit. Could I create a program, a fitness program for adults to come to English Out of Ballet and that combines Pilates, ballet, you know, all these wellbeing principles. And I had great fun with that because it was just mine. There's no, I had no criteria. It was just do what you want. And it was a huge success and I had great fun teaching it, but it, you know, it ran its course there. I believe they've got somebody else to, in doing something similar now. But I just took, I was a bit, I'm quite business minded. So I bought the name company's house and bought the domain name. So I just kept that as my company name. Mm-hmm. Once I was completely on my own. What
0: did it comprise, the course, the training? It was
1: just part, but ballet bar, which is very good for your stability in general, your balance, core stability, strength, isolated joint strength, flexibility. And then combined with some sort of Pilates mat work, you know, in the middle of the room on mats and stretching and fun music. And I would oftentimes, you know, just you know, choreograph it on the spot when I was there because it was that mm. was a luxury I had.
0: So is that how you approach? So if a client, or if I came to you today, yeah, I, was, I would I, make it
1: up on the spot. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> I said to you, uh, the podcast was born out of me having a bad back for uh, you know two back operations in quick succession. Yeah. So if I came to you, because I've still got back pain, you would devise a specific program for me, which you, I you wouldn't would, incorporate ballet. You wouldn't get me on no. a bar. well, actually, <laughs> I incorporate would.
1: principles of ballet. The great thing, I sat in a theater once, I think it's Alice Salah's Wells, waiting for a performance start, and this lady next to me, who's also by herself, started chatting to me, and she asked me what I did, and I told her, and she said, you look like an ex-dancer, and I told her I was. And she said, because she did Pilates, she said, Pilates ex-dancers make the best Pilates teachers. Now I might be biased, <laughs> but I agree because as ballet da- ballet dancers, we are perfectionists through and through. There isn't an, an inch of our brain that doesn't work based on pure perfection. Because we've analyzed our bodies twelve to fourteen hours a day, every day since we were four years old. And that's where we've worked and our our product is our body, is our physique. So we are just trained to hone in on everything.
0: To a point to of be, obsession. Yeah.
1: Oh, to be a dancer, you have to be obsessive mm. and crazy. But yeah, so no, so what I would do is obviously, like I said before, when I come to my corporate clients, I have to do my background research. So I look at your scans and any clinician's reports. But when it comes to actually working with you, first of all, I change the way I work with everybody because there's a, a psychology to it. You need to, some people are visual, some people are aural, some people are kinesthetic. So that means one, the first would be somebody who can see me doing something and copy it. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs, an aural person would need a description or hear words to tell them what to do. And somebody who's kinesthetic would need tactile feedback from myself or words that describe a feeling for them to respond. So if I, I will spend time talking to them in the beginning to understand which one of those three they are. Because if I get, a kinesthetic person who is normally they're quite introverted as well and just start talking to them and showing them things and saying, do this and do this, I will get nowhere and I'll lose them completely. So the first thing I have to do is understand the psychology of that person. Second of all, which comes very close into that is chronic pain. So chronic pain being pain that's but gone on for a long period of time if you're dealing with somebody who's on an eight-year pain journey they are done i'm the millionth person that has been you know they've been referred to and they're like yeah are you like everyone else who thought they could cure me yeah you know and they're just desperately that, that would be miserable. me by the way yeah <laughs> and you know you're desperately miserable and then especially if you've had surgery and you come out of the surgery thinking oh this would be great and 18 months later you're still in agony because no surgeon explains that surgery is like really really traumatic all and- that, the, all that
0: the first operation well he did actually explain the first operation could <sighs> go wrong and it did go wrong <sighs> i was that one in the 10,000 or million, million oh, Steve, person. Steve, only you met me two years before. <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, so no, but then once I start working with somebody, once I know that we trust each other and we're going to get on, because that's also very important, they have to trust me completely. If they don't, then it's not no point. And I have to like them as well. Some people I just don't like um no, I'm kidding. but you know then then I wing it when I say wing it I make it up on the spot as I go along because each session is different I could plan everything but then I wouldn't have any sleep because every hour I work i would be out planning so that wouldn't make any sense and I don't get paid for that time either but you know sometimes it's good to be impulsive with the with what I do on each session because I had a lady the other day I've been seeing her for years she's one of my most longest standing and most loyal clients and I went, and she's really fit. She has constant problems with the thoracic spine, and that's normally what we focus on. And she had this banging headache. And I said, "Would well, you want to cancel? And we'll do tomorrow." She, this headache hadn't left for two days. It was one of those, you know, mm. real game-changing headaches. And so I spent the whole thing mobilising her cervical spine. That's neck to any, you know, underachievers out there. And uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and, and that my so my whole raison d'être for that for that session was to get rid of this headache for it because she can't function. And I did. Well, it was better by the time, you know, we got to the end of the hour. I've yet to text her and see if she's okay.
0: So just talk me through Pilates. What, what is the, what are the basic principles of Pilates? Because I well, went, I went once a few years back to Pilates class at our local gym oh, and I just couldn't get it at all this is a
1: thing it's because it's so it's based on such precision yeah you will struggle in group environments there's no question um so the basic principles are this about breathing it's about control precision you basically you're working on your you're stabilizing your core muscles so when people talk about the core they think of their stomach um and they're not they're not completely wrong, but your core is much more than that. It's any muscles that are not mover muscles. So, for example, if you take the the abdomen, the stomach, we think of our six-pack, as that, that must mean you have a good well, core. Well, I'd like to
0: think of my six-pack. Yeah, yeah, the six-pack yeah. that so
1: many of us have, yeah. like when we're beach body ready, mm. that's not actually your core. That's a very superficial, it's a spinal flexor. It's a muscle that contracts and bends you forward. Hence, if you just do loads of sit-ups, you'll get a six-pack but it doesn't mean your core is strong. Your core is much deeper than that. It goes to the back of your abdomen, quite close to your spine, and it supports your pelvis and your spine. So that's why the core is so important when it comes to back care. I would include also your glute muscles, your butt in your core as well, just because it's a pelvic stabilizer. And then all the way up your spine, you have muscles called multifidus and erector spinae. They are also stabilizing muscles. They don't move you. They just hold you.
0: What are you doing in Pilates? Because I, my recollection was very small yeah. movement. That well, that's about precision. Yeah. You
1: can make. You can make... Once you understand the principle of what you're doing, you can create movement around it, which is essentially what I do. But I have the luxury of my dancer backgrounds giving me that creativity. I think the classical Pilates repertoire is only 32 exercises. Well, if I stuck to those, I would die of boredom. I think so will my clients. You can't, I personally don't stick to those. And also there's some of them are so not relevant nowadays, given the pathologies I deal with. So my work is a bit more creative because of the pathologies I'm working with. But yeah, you're basically mobility of your joints, increasing flexibility and muscle muscle tissue, strengthening your core, strengthening your deep muscles. So not your global muscles, like your quads and your hamstrings would be considered global muscles. They're things that get active just by standing up and walking to boil the kettle. Mm. We're talking about muscles that because of our sedentary lifestyle, most of us are sitting, you and I are sitting right now, they're completely relaxed. Your core, your stabilizing muscles are at rest. Take for example, you know, your, your core is something that, as a woman, if you were to give birth postnatally, your core is not is not great anymore. That includes your pelvic floor; that's also part of your core. Do you think they give pelvic floor training to these women in developing countries after they've given birth? No. Well, not just because of the lack of medical care; they don't need to. Those women are out in the fields every day carrying big, heavy loads on their head. You see in those pictures, mm-hmm. right? They, their core is strong. Their pelvic floor is, is rock hard. So when they give birth, that's not really a rehab issue for them. Whereas here in the West, we're sitting at desks, we sit on our cars, we're sitting on buses, we're sitting on trains. So for that reason, our core, our pelvic floor is not as it should be. It wasn't what it was made to be anyway.
0: So we've been getting weaker.
1: Yeah, we're getting weaker. But no, are weaker society, we're over the
0: generations. Weaker.
1: And also, I'm now seeing the, this lovely iPhone generation. I think they're going to be my pension by the time I'm about fifty, and they're my age. I'm going to be able to retire after like a decade with them.
0: Well, it's people like me, all <laughs> they do pod- podcast, and all you need to do is sit around doing yeah. nothing, or they listening to podcasts. But you know,
1: so you know, so I did a really interesting. I do a blog, and the first blog I did, I've I
0: read some of your blog before I came out. It's I, I, very I,
1: polarizing. Yes. But it I can it see works. how
0: you'd upset some people. Oh, thanks. But I can see that it's quite yeah, humorous. And but it's,
1: well, if you enjoy humor, then, yeah. yeah. If you don't, maybe stay away. Um, but the first one I did, I don't really know what to write about. And I've been dealing with a lot of people, again, city-based people, you know, with this neck pain and so on. And I get it myself if I'm too busy on Facebook or something when I'm, you know, a bit hungover or tired and I have nothing better to do. And suddenly your neck starts aching. And... You know what's? I did some research. And so the angle that you put your head at at the normal angle, just to look at your, you know, your smartphone is, I think, 60 degrees, 60 degrees. Yeah, 60 degrees tilt forwards. By holding your head at that angle, the extra weight on your on your neck is that of an eight year old child. Now, putting it in those terms really makes you understand how damaging yeah. technology can be. Because up until recently,
0: one of the key office injuries was um, re- repetitive strain, wasn't it, On the, on the, yeah. on the and the thumb for yeah. scrolling. But now, as you say, a common injury is the head being leaned yeah. forward. Ne- and-
1: yeah. So, But again, these are all things that I'm dealing with. So they become sometimes what I call co-pathologies. So maybe it's somebody like you who's had back surgery, but actually later on there's a co-pathology like you know, your cervical spine from using your smartphone or RSI from the typing or use it. Also mouse, a ma- I've yeah, yeah. gotten really into upright mice. Mice? Can I say oh, I don't know. I guess you Mouses, can. Mouses, you know, the computer Meesh. mice. So the upright ones that rotate your arm to, you know, to externally rotate your arms, your shoulder and your neck are more relaxed when you're using them. I don't know how practical they are in an office environment because I don't, I'm not office based, but I do tend to recommend them to people who are getting this ligament problem in their forearm.
0: Yeah, but yeah, and and people other- also have these standing desks now as well, don't they? Correct. So don't you-
1: I mean, yeah, I know. There's in the, some of the banks the clients I have in some of the major banks because they have a lot of money, you know. Obviously, in, in terms of occupational health, they have these standing desks, but they changeable. So they can just push a button and it sort of you know oh, wow. up and then down again. But that's also dependent if your company have that money. If you're working for a smaller company or a startup or a government office you're unlikely to access those things in which case that's where I come in it's all well and good having all this smart technology but you still need to understand yourself what your body is doing and why the pain is there if you don't understand that you know you could have the most expensive desk or chair in the world it's not going to help sure. it's about about how you're sitting
0: do you give advice do you presumably you do consider the importance of diet in the in the Rehabilitation and program of uh, people who are suffering.
1: I now because well, one of the co-pathologies that I'm recently dealing with, especially in the last year, four of my clients who I see several times a week of all, uh, been diagnosed with cancer or had cancer treatment. So that is uh, something I've had to educate myself on. I'm lucky enough to be a member of the Royal Society of Medicine, so they have a fantastic program that I can access lectures on pretty much anything I want, and also the medical library there. So I've spent a lot of time informing myself about cancer treatment and how exercise can uh, benefit cancer patients and all the other things surrounding. So in the last year, I've employed an osteopath, a clinical massage therapist and a nutritionist so that it's a more combined service to bring to people, especially those of cancer. So I personally don't advise on nutrition. My personal nutritional value every day is is crap. I'm not good with what I eat uh, because I live on convenience food. I know nobody wants to hear that.
0: Well, you're one of these people who keeps... Slim, the no, old, horrible irrespective... horrible
1: woman that will eat what I want and not gain weight, yeah. yes. I'm sure it will Most change. Most women hate you. I'm sure. And, and <laughs> I'm I'm sure it'll change. I'll wake up and I'll be a monster by the time I'm 40. Who knows? And then I'll watch what I eat. Now I'm starting to be a bit more aware. I, I, just mortality kicks in more than anything else. It's not even a weight issue. It's just I'm getting older.
0: You, you're not old, believe me. <laughs> you also... In my little bit of research I did, you—I think you also appeared in a movie, didn't you?
1: Oh God, which one? Because some of them were tragic. Was it
0: Street Dance?
1: Oh, sure, sure. yeah, I did. <laughs> so that was—that was not. It was not something for the the CV. That was more just one of those. Um, at the, I was unemployed at the time, and my agent came up with something. Do you want to be in a film? I was like, yeah. It's a, when you take these things from agent. It's usually just, about, oh, you're free on the day, and you know, is the money good? And it was a few days of filming. And I didn't even go, I didn't see the movie. I had, no, I still haven't seen the movie. And my niece, who was, I don't know how much, how old she was at the time. She texted me and said, Auntie Ran. She called me Auntie Ran when she was a baby. So that stuck. Auntie Ran, were you in Street Down 3D? I like when Oh God, yeah, I was. She went, yeah, I've just seen your name in the credits. She's like, I thought it was you.
0: So, yes, it was. So what? Well, you just had a walk on park part so, of the chorus, or no?
1: It's just a ballet dancer in the in the background. So obviously, there's. A, I don't know. I haven't seen the film. Yeah, oh, you check it, it out. It you might see it's
0: it out on YouTube. Oh
1: God, I think I recognize But No, I've done a few. I did. I was in a film. And Madonna directed a film called Filth and Wisdom. I was in that. What else? A couple of others, but they, they yeah, they're just as usually as a dancer in the background.
0: That's interesting. It's another string to your bow. Yeah.
1: No films I liked because of the intensity and how everyone is just forced to get on when you're on a film set time is money this famous phrase and it really is so you're probably picked up around five ish in the morning you're in hair and makeup by half five and it's a really really long day and you know filming could go on for days and again like most things in the arts you're not done until somebody says you can go home. Yeah, I mean, it'd be exhausting. So everyone is sort of forced to get on really well together and really just collaborate and make sure everything gets done so that if anything, you could go to the pub, you know, for the last hour or something. So that often happened. So No, I liked films for that reason. Yeah, it
0: must be a fun experience for you, if nothing else. Yeah.
1: Oh, there were some great things. I remember doing something, a commercial, and they, they wanted a ballet dancer, you know, I don't know, he was nervous and I don't know, ate some yogurt or something to settle her stomach. As if she was in the wings. But what they'd done, they'd hired this country estate and put me outside on cobblestones in point shoes and wanted to, me to do some pirouettes and things. And this is the the hilarity of doing film or TV work as a dancer or anybody. Because you get hired for a job based on your agent, your pictures, your showreel, and you get drafted in for a day. They pay you lots of money, don't get me wrong, but They don't know anything about ballet. They don't understand that being on your toes means cobblestones really aren't, you know, gonna be the right surface to be working on. Anyway, I sort of had to tell them that no, I can't pirouette on you know
0: on cobbles. Yeah. No, not good for your posture. So do you miss ballet or do you still practice ballet from time to time? Do you get into a studio? I practice
1: dance when I'm drunk and in a nightclub and I think that I'm twenty-two again. But no, I don't I'm not on stage anymore. Um, most of my former colleagues are also retired. I miss it in so much as if I go and watch the ballet nowadays, which I try and do as much as I can, I, I feel nostalgia. I don't miss the terrible pay or the long hours or being screamed at or the extreme pain that you would often be in at the end of every day. But of course, you know, adrenaline covers that. You don't really notice it so much. But I miss, I think I just miss my younger self maybe because I'm 34 now. So watching that generation, you know, you know start their careers, that's quite... That's nice mm. to watch.
0: You kept in touch with the, your former college yeah, friends. Yeah, I was
1: with three of them just two weeks ago. We met up after not seeing each other for years. And we went to a restaurant and ended up leaving our table and dancing around our table yeah. to the music. And we got the whole restaurant up dancing. And have so, any yeah. of your
0: friends or your colleagues from those days gone on to become well-known?
1: One of them is a choreographer. Uh, she's choreographing for, I think she's does something for Northern Ballet Theatre and English National Ballet. Uh, her name is Morgan. The other girl, Therese, the one who I said I live with, she's got a ballet school for children. So yeah, everyone has gone on to do things that are somehow connected to the ballet world. Yeah. It's a very, it's a really hard profession to leave because, well, I guess for me, I was much younger. So it, it just, it was, and it was natural. I'd already found something else that took over. But for dancers who are maybe my age and ending their career now, it, because it's a bubble, it's a, a your life in a bubble where you know nothing else. It's really hard to leave. So, I think like an athlete would be the same, you know, an Olympian would be the same. You, what, what do you do after? It's yeah. like your whole routine, your reason for getting up every day is gone. Yeah. So what do you even do? What do you even have for breakfast?
0: No, absolutely. In fact, I'm just finishing off the the uh, autobi- a biography on Tiger Woods and his oh, whole wow. life was in this bubble Yeah. Of, of is Has he retired 20- now? 20- Sorry? Has
1: he retired now? Or is he retired? I, I, no, oh. no he's,
0: he's still, I mean, oh. he's come back more times than Frank Sinatra, I think. You know, he's come back and back and back. And he's had so many operations on, you know, his, his back, his knees, every part is he's damaged. Oh really? But he's got a fascinating story. Not not the nicest person you'd ever meet. I've heard. Yeah. But um, what an athlete. Yeah. You know, talk talk about obsessive. He's as obsessive you as that as you be. guys. Yeah.
1: You have to be. Yeah. You're not you can't it's just it's just like I say, it's an all consuming life. You have to be obsessed and want it. You have to want it as well. There's no such thing as like, oh, you know, you're pushed into it. I knew, looking back, I got into it because I was good at it. That's another draw. I only like things I'm good at. So having so many teachers as a child tell me how good I was, that was what drew me. I think if I wasn't good, I wouldn't have had to drive to do it. I wouldn't have gone, oh, I want to be a dancer. It's having the praise that encourages you and makes course, you want to
0: do it. self-esteem. And dancing, I guess, also, like any sort of form of activity that you're good at, will, will elevate your, your self-esteem. And your mental health as well. I'm guessing
1: can it can be both if things are good. Yeah, the adrenaline, the endorphins of being on stage, the training. The you know when you are working on a you know uh, whatever choreography is going to be you know put into the repertory, you have about a six to eight week rehearsal period where you're just in the studio every single day, and that's pretty depressing. Your body's exhausted. You that's when you probably get injured. Your mental health takes a bit of a you know uh, a torpedo there. But then the stage bit is when you remember. But sadly, the stage bit is so much less than the rehearsals. It it really depends. It's a a tough life. You have to have a strong tolerance in terms of mental health. Obviously, eating disorders are rife. Depression, low self-esteem also because of the criticism. Nobody is criticizing, criticizing you as a person. But it's hard to separate day in, day out. The criticism being personal because they're criticizing your body because that's your product. So that any criticism... criticise
0: your body as well, opposed no. to the technique? No, because,
1: no your technique, your, whatever you're right. doing in rehearsal, any... Constructive criticism is about your body, your, what you're doing, your movement. Right. So it's very hard on a daily basis, on a recurrent basis yeah. to separate Not that, to take it, personally. to take it personally yeah. because it's your, that's your product. If you're making something or you're, I don't know, you're a journalist or you write a piece, there's an element of you in that anyways, but it's the word, the words that are being criticized. Whereas with us, it's us that's being criticized. So it's very hard to, some days that just does just get you down, but it's part of the job.
0: So where do you see, ballet fit going forward over the next year to five years. So you, you've got plans for Oh, you sound
1: like my businessman mentor. Growth. Yeah. I want to, now I have almost entirely, it's almost entirely patient referral. And now I've taken on all these other, you know, other employees who are providing, you know, complimentary services to what I do. And now I've seen just year in, year out, such positive feedback from the clients that I have and how, what a difference has made to their lives. So the cancer patients, you know, the fact that I can, the other day I had a lady, she just had mouth cancer, so she had a big it's oral surgery, having all her lymph nodes removed. So swelling is really common because you don't have lymph nodes to drain the lymph anymore. And it was 10 o'clock at night and she was not being able to sleep because it was so swollen. And I could video call her and just talk her through how to mobilize her own jaw and neckline to help it, you know, drain a little so she could get some sleep. Stuff like that. I can't quantify how good that makes me feel and how helpful it is for sure. her. I just wanted to do more and more of that. Obviously, there's ways I have to monetize it and so on, but that's something just, just a business plan that's boring for the podcast. That's not a thing of interest. No,
0: not at all. It's, it's far from boring. because um,
1: I won't think – just getting as many people as possible to be aware that exercise in every way is good for you. There is no contraindication ever. There's contraindications within certain pathologies, certain exercises you shouldn't do. But there's never, ever been any medical trial or any clinical research done that shows Exercise in any way could be a negative impact on your life. It's entirely I guess positive. unless it's
0: super repetitive and you're doing the same thing yeah, over Yeah, but that's what I'm
1: saying. If you just exercise in general is always a good thing. Yeah. I went to a, a seminar at the Royal Society of Medicine last year called Work and Cancer. So it's about keeping cancer patients at work while they have their treatment. Because funny enough, giving up work is a luxury and most of us can't afford in the event we get diagnosed with cancer. So it's about how to help them stay at work, how to help the employees understand how to keep them at work. So things like sanitization is a huge thing because they're a huge infection risk. They can't go to the movies or on trains or on planes. So how do you put them in the workplace and keep their job? And just, you know, the every single oncologist that spoke at the seminar, one of the best things they could advise their patients outside, of obviously, the actual treatment is exercise, Both both as prevention and cure. Obviously not cure as in curing cancer, but as a support for the cure. It's just i mean i just want everybody to do as much as possible and uh, my way of dealing with yes it's bespoke yes i charge people to go into their homes but you know ultimately i'd like to do something more maybe with the nhs maybe when this whole brexit thing's done with and we can decide where what uh, When the government
0: going. decides it wants to do some work yeah been, yeah but leaps.
1: i just want everybody to have access to this advice this self-management strategy that means you can you can help yourself. You don't have to be reliant on surgeries or medications or massages or osteopaths. Or yes, all of those things collectively help. I'm not disputing any of the existing evidence for you know existing treatments, but exercise can do so much.
0: Mm, absolutely. So, Rianne, yeah, we're at that time of the uh, the discussion where I'm going to ask you to tell all the listeners one or two places that you really love and recommend in london it could be a place you go to eat a restaurant a pub a walk or something that you 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 love and you can let your hair down perhaps or relax
1: so the sole reason that i reconnected with three of my closest friends from ballet school there two weeks ago um a place called quaglino's which is down uh, near piccadilly and it's a live music venue and an amazing restaurant and just the memory i have from just then with those three girls who are my lifelong friends and we had this amazing food and more champagne than anyone should ever drink and we danced like lunatics like we were 16 again so that has a really special memory and i've been there a few times since and it's just a great fun place to go lovely
0: that's absolutely perfect so that's quaglino's in in central london
1: Uh, yeah in piccadilly
0: yeah so everyone get yourself down to quaglino's and enjoy yourself have a good boogie definitely well, thank you very much for so much. Uh, coming on the show. Uh, you, you've got a, a fascinating story. There can't be too many ballerinas turned, you know, Pilates <laughs> instructors and health clinicians doing exactly what you're doing. So I hope not. <laughs> so you're carving out a niche in, in uh, Northwest London, which is fantastic. And I, I'm sure because with your passion and energy, you're clearly a very energetic I person, am. I can tell. We love energy. Um, that it's, it's just going to grow and go from strength to strength. So how can people get hold of you and find your website they and your social media? Go to
1: mm-hmm. They can go to the ballet-fit.com. They can go to theballetfit on Instagram. I hear that's the way the cool kids are accessing information nowadays. And that's, yeah, everything is, you know, is there for people to access. If they want to contact me, it's all on my website there.
0: Perfect. Well, once again, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Every week here at Your London Legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.